Welcome to Apostrophe Cast. This episode, we bring you the brand spanking new Bible stories of Brian Farunas, in which Lucifer is a precocious little boy and Jesus is his accident prone buddy. The suburban children of this unholy scripture effortlessly humiliate their mortal parents, who lock them out on summer days and paint mustaches on their portraits. Please enjoy the inspired work of Brian Farunas. Hey, Apostrophe Cast listeners. This is Brian Farunas. I'm broadcasting from my office at Butler University in the adjunct bullpen. It's a Saturday afternoon in February, and I'm kind of hoping none of my coworkers walk in on me during this. I'm going to read two short pieces to you today. Uh, both are from a novel I'm working on called The Lost Episodes of Revy Bryson. Uh, in this novel, the mother makes up Bible stories to tell her 12-year-old son, and uh, these are a couple of those made-up Bible stories. Oh, I should tell you that in the mother's Bible stories, Jesus and Lucifer are best friends, and they grew up in the 80s around Gary, Indiana. The first piece is called Portrait of Lucifer as a Young Man. Uh, originally, it was published in Freight Stories, which can be found at www.freightstories.com. Lucifer's father was a portrait painter for hire. If you mailed him a photograph and a check for $400, he would paint your likeness in dark, smoky oils. Not a bad deal for a classic ego trip and the surest way to make new money look old. It was the 1980s. His business boomed. He wasn't the world's greatest portrait painter, truth be told, but his clients didn't complain and he loved the work. Loved it so much, in fact, that when he was finished with paying jobs for the day, he liked to paint Hoosiers of guttering fame, men like Hoagie Carmichael or Booth Tarkington, men whose names rang a faint bell but you weren't sure why, though you thought they might have pitched for the Cubs or served in your grandfather's platoon. The idea behind these unpaid portraits was to revive some of the subject's former fame, but since no museum or gallery had commissioned them, or would accept them even as donations. They ended up lining the living room wall in rows, a jury box of befuddled uncles. Growing up, Lucifer thought portraits were ridiculous and that his father's clients were shallow and stupid. But around the time of his twelfth birthday, curiosity began to gnaw at him. If his father could make a grain dealer look like a university president, how dignified would Lucifer look in oil? Oh, you'll find out soon enough, his father said, but it won't be from me. You'll be so famous you won't need a schlub like me to boost your image. This wasn't your standard case of a doting father with high hopes for his boy. Lucifer was lousy with talent and lousy at hiding it. A lot of people thought he was going to make it big. Some even hoped for it. What was he good at? Everything. By the time he was ten, he could whip his father in the Jeopardy play-at-home game. At his fifth-grade graduation ceremony, Lucifer gave such a stirring delivery of Tennyson's Ulysses that the entire crowd stood up in the bleachers. No one could say why. In gymnastics, he could whirl his body around the pommel horse so fast that his legs blurred into a propeller. 
But the real marvel was that none of the other boys in school made fun of him for it. Lucifer was electromagnetic, and fame seemed to be flying toward him. What he didn't know, what his father didn't know either, was how famous he would become, and for what. But they were about to get a hint. His father tried to tell him no, but Lucifer wheedled. He cajoled. He reasoned, issued mild and veiled threats, promised rewards, posed leading questions to draw his father into a minefield of rhetorical traps and tripwires of guilt. The boy did not ever beg, but he employed every other form of verbal persuasion known to man and a few new ones besides. His approach wasn't smooth yet, but he was persistent. Finally, on the third afternoon, when he sensed that his father would agree to anything to stop the noise, he closed the deal. Look, said Lucifer, stroking his bare lip, no mustache. Mustaches were the bane of his father's work. His portraits were usually decent until he could no longer put off the mustache, and there was always a mustache. The kind of man who commissions a portrait is never clean-shaven. And then his subject would look like he'd somehow trapped a caterpillar between lip and nose, and was now waiting, slightly cross-eyed with fear, for animal control to arrive. Oh, for Christ's sake, sit down, his father said. Let's get this over with. Lucifer arranged himself on a chair while his father set up the easel in the living room. Usually his father whistled Peter and the Wolf as he painted, but today his whistle came out thin and shrill, and after a few minutes he fell silent. Now and then he'd make a brush stroke, but mostly he frowned at the canvas and tapped the end of the brush against his teeth. Hold still, he said several times, though he was the only one fidgeting. After a few agonizing hours, he plucked the canvas off the easel. Forget it, he said. If you want a portrait so bad, we'll call Peter Muntz. He does kids. Show me what you got, said Lucifer. His father looked at it again. Now nah, I'm just going to get rid of it. Lucifer stepped toward him. Show me. I'm not used to working with live models. Too many dimensions. But when Lucifer took hold of the portrait, his father let go of it with a sigh. The boy was going to get his way eventually, so why fight him? At first glance, Lucifer didn't see the problem. It looked like him, all right. Maybe he looked a little older than eleven, but that might have been because of the brown suit he'd put on for the painting. But his face, it was a little long and the way his head tilted down while his eyes looked up expectantly. The boy in the painting looked as though he had been amused a moment earlier, but was not any longer. He looked like he was about to say, where's the money, or I'm waiting. Lucifer began to understand why his father had kept squirming. The portrait put the viewer on the spot. Looking at it, you felt like a laugh had started up your throat and swelled into a lump. Lucifer put it back on the easel, tried a joke. Put a mustache on it. His father dabbed his brush in the blackest paint and drew a thin, cartoonish mustache complete with big, swirling curls. Lucifer laughed, so his father added a sharp little goatee and four rough lines. 
horns, said Lucifer. And they watched a pair of goat horns appear on his forehead. They took turns then, adding wicked black eyebrows and a weird serpent tail and a forked tongue, each of them forcing out a puttering laugh at every embellishment, so the other would know that this was hilarious, a mere mistake, some fun, not something that scared the hell out of them both. The next story is called Parable of the Lost Finger. Jesus was a good kid, but he could drive his mother crazy, especially in the summertime. She couldn't get a single thing done around the house with him tagging after her, leaving a trail of dirty socks and used cereal bowls, mooing, I'm bored. At first, she tried giving him suggestions. Would he like to fold the laundry? Learn how to make chicken chip bake? Run five laps around the house? She would time him. Jesus met every suggestion with a flat look. To his mind, the only thing worse than boredom was an assignment. Shooing him outside didn't really work either. She'd hardly get the screen door shut before she'd hear it slide open again, and behold, there was Jesus, drinking iced tea at the kitchen island, leafing through the Sears catalog with the screen door wide open behind him. That's why she took to locking Jesus out on summer days. She didn't come to this decision lightly or easily. She hemmed and hawed and called other mothers for advice, most of whom laughed and said they'd been exiling their kids on warm days for years. It was Lucifer's mother who finally pushed her off the fence. Honey, she said, there's a reason that mama birds have to kick their babies out of the nest. Summer mornings, Lucifer would wander over to Jesus' garage around ten or so, and most of the time his neighbor, Becky, came with him. They were all twelve years old, but that summer, Becky had started looking like she'd fast-forwarded a few years. Let's go to the pool, Lucifer suggested day after day, as if the idea had just occurred to him. That's a great idea, Jesus would reply. It's so hot. But every time when Becky answered, you guys go ahead if you want to, I'll just go back home, the boys would drop the pool idea. Most days they ended up doing the same stuff they've done for years, riding bikes over ketchup packets, chasing each other with bottle rockets, trying out yo mama jokes, mutilating worms in the name of science. They invented games like Firing Squad, where one person stood blindfolded against the garage door and attempted to catch tennis balls whacked at him by the others as fast and hard as they could. They held mock funerals, taking turns lying in the milkweed and scratchy Queen Anne's lace in the meadow behind the school, while the others looked at the body mournfully. When it was Becky's turn to be dead, they mourned her body a good long time. These games filled up the first week of summer, but by week two they were bored again. One muggy June morning, they laid down on the garage floor, soaking in the coolness of the smooth concrete. Lucifer asked Becky if she had any questions about the male body. Seriously, he would answer them. I will leave if you don't knock it off, she said. I will leave so fast. Lucifer turned to Jesus. 
Let's all scream, he said. I bet your mom will come running out if we scream. They did, and she did. She flung open the door to the garage, standing there with an unplugged iron in her hand like she might brain somebody with it. What are you doing, she said as soon as she realized no one was hurt. It's a play, said Jesus. We're practicing a play. She opened her mouth like she was going to say something, but then thought better of it and slammed the door shut. They all heard her lock it. Lucifer walked around inside the garage, touching tools that dangled from the pegboard walls. Jesus said, don't touch that, don't touch that, that one's going to fall, just don't. But he was too distracted by the sight of Becky slowly making concrete angels to sound like he actually meant what he said. Then Lucifer stopped in front of the radio flyer wagon. What happened next wasn't Lucifer's fault. Nobody blamed him, even after it came out that the whole thing had been his idea in the first place. That was the thing about Lucifer. You could always count on him for an idea. Lucifer wheeled the wagon to the sidewalk and pointed it down the big hill. He got in front and folded the long black handle back to himself. I'll steer. Becky got in behind him and grabbed two handfuls of his shirt. Don't think I'm going to put my arms around you because I'm not, she said. But Jesus noticed that she wrapped her legs around his waist. This left Jesus to push the wagon from behind, like a tobogganer. Which was harder than you might think. The top of the hill was flat, and the two other kids might have been skinny, but they still made a heavy load for a wagon. But after a few slow, trudging steps, the wagon started picking up speed. Jesus jumped in the back, kneeing Becky's spine. Sorry, he said. He put his hands on her shoulders, but she shot him a black look. Sorry, he said again, and wrapped his fingers around the curved edge of the wagon bed. The hill was steep. About a third of the way down, the wagon really got going, dropping like a roller coaster car, going over sidewalk squares like clackada, clackada, clackada. All three of them leaned forward, squinting into the wind, kind of clenching their bodies until Becky leaned back into Jesus and he felt her warm weight all over his front like a lead apron and that's when the steering went just the slightest bit wobbly. Whoa, Lucifer said to the handle, suddenly fighting his grip and then the front wheels turned and locked, flipping the wagon over onto its side. Becky and Lucifer spilled out like dice from a cup. Only Jesus held on to the wagon, clenching harder as it scraped along the concrete with a sound like the end of the universe until, at last, it came to rest on some guy's lawn. Becky sat up, touched a raw spot on her knee. Nice driving, shithead, she said to Lucifer. He sat up too, tasting blood in his mouth. You're the one who leaned back, he said. Threw off the balance. Jesus slumped out of the wagon. His skull felt like it was packed with gauze. Everything seemed far away. He held up his hand and waved it stupidly in front of his face, but no one looked over. How do you know I leaned back, said Becky. Well, you did, said Lucifer. You just admitted it. Jesus held up his hand and waved it in front of his face again. The other two still hadn't looked at him.
Becky wiped blood from her knee and flicked it at Lucifer. Glad you were paying attention to the road. Lucifer was about to answer, but just then Jesus spoke in a thick voice. Something happened, he said. They turned to see him holding up his hand. At first, because there wasn't much blood, they didn't know what they were looking at. Some kind of sign language? Was he making a joke? A bad joke, like when bachelor uncles pretend to pull their thumb into two pieces? Becky was the first one to understand that the top joint of his index finger was gone. Her tongue fell with a clucking sound. Lucifer took off first, bolting up the hill, but Becky wasn't far behind. Even then, Jesus knew they weren't going for help. Jesus started up the hill slowly, trying to stay calm, holding up his stump like a little torch. He rang the doorbell at his house, but got no answer. Next, he tried the door inside the garage, still locked. No answer at that one either, even when he pounded. Now his finger was bleeding, dripping everywhere, and calmness was starting to look like a luxury he couldn't afford. If Jesus wasn't careful, he was going to calmly bleed to death. Jesus kicked the back door. He screamed loud enough to bring tears to his eyes, but still no one came. Where the hell was his mother? Her station wagon was right there in the driveway. Was she in the bathroom? Was she ironing downstairs with the record player turned up loud? Or was she in the kitchen thinking, I'm not falling for that play nonsense again? Jesus headbutted the door, then spat on it. That didn't make any sense, but that's how angry he was. In the end, it took a call from Mrs. Ray, the neighbor lady, to bring his mother out. Your son's doing laps around your house screaming his head off, said Mrs. Ray, and it looks like he's bleeding pretty good. Jesus' mother burst out the front door. When she saw his bloody hand, she froze, horrified and ashamed, but recovered quickly enough to start shouting orders before she even reached him. Car! Hospital! Hurry! Vamoose! But here came Mr. Ray, waddling out with his bad hip, holding up a box of sandwich baggies, calling, We have to find the finger! They can sew it back on! Jesus' mother hesitated. She didn't want her boy to lose his finger, but the last thing she wanted just then was to drag out this spectacle of neighborly humiliation. But Mr. Ray was already grabbing her arm, and the next thing she knew, they were dragging the hill. Mr. Ray, a former lifeguard at Lake Schaefer, made them link arms to form a human dragnet, walking slowly down the sidewalk, three steps forward, two steps back. Jesus was at one end of the line, his hands swaddled in a kitchen towel brought out by Mrs. Ray, mainly so none of them would have to look at that awful space where the finger wasn't. Jesus had finally stopped screaming, but he couldn't keep from snuffling as he thought, my finger, my finger, my finger, the thought like a new pulse. When his mother asked why they didn't just search around the wrecked wagon, Mr. Ray said that body parts never turned up where you expected them. The finger might have been thrown clear or tumbled down the rest of the hill. It might have been carried off by a squirrel. His mother said, I am usually not a bad mother, I swear. Mrs. Ray said, Honestly, Hal, a squirrel? Mr. Ray continued to lead them down the hill, arm in arm, like the world's saddest folk dance. Jesus was the one who found the finger. It was just where his mother had predicted. 
in the grass a few feet behind the crashed wagon, poking straight up like a little stake pounded into the ground. This is the happy moment, right? When everyone feels huge relief, like the parable of the lost son or the one about the lost coin? Not this time. Seeing his finger, Jesus went wobbly. His knees buckled, and the last thing he heard before he hit the sidewalk was his mother's scream. The doctor sewed the finger back on, just like Mr. Ray had promised. The nerves even grew back, mostly. After a year or so, Jesus hardly thought about it. But when the fingertip got tingly on cold days, or someone noticed that one of his index fingers was just a bit stumpy, Jesus would think back on the day of the crash. And what he remembered first wasn't the crash itself, or his mother locking him out, or his friends running away when he needed them. The first thing that came to his mind was the sight of his finger on the lawn. Death was coming for Jesus. He knew that back then, just as he knew that death wasn't going to be the end for him. But when he saw that finger, bolt upright on the grass, as if he had been buried down there and was crawling up through the soil, he knew for the first time that death wasn't going to be the hard part. Thank you for listening. Please join us next episode for Lily Wong.